This message was recorded at Fillmore Baptist Church in Princeton, Louisiana. Our goal is to faithfully preach the Word of God for the salvation of sinners, the strengthening of believers, and the glory of God. Please visit our website at www.fillmorebaptist.org and listen for more information at the conclusion of this message. We cross the Great Divide. Um... If they had not had a sign there, I would have never known it, but I'm, I'm taking their word for it. We, we crossed the Great Divide. You know what the Great Divide is? Every, everything. Go ahead, yeah. Oh, go ahead. That's right. That's, that's the dividing line. So you've got the watershed on one side goes to the, uh, the Atlantic Ocean and the Gulf of Mexico, and the watershed on the other side goes to the Pacific Ocean, so all the you know rivers on the east side and so forth flow toward the Atlantic. All the rivers on the other side flow toward the Pacific. So it's a, it's an imaginary line. You know they don't they don't have it painted or anything, but uh, they do have signs up. Like I said, just all the way down the Rockies. In fact, it it uh, extends up through Canada and down through um, the southern part of North America and in South America. Um, it it is a Dividing line. So again, all the water on each side flows in opposite directions. Um, I thought about that when I was looking at this passage uh, here before us because that's somewhat of an analogy. Uh, we're we're moving in a different direction than the world. The gospel provides for us a great divide. It's um, a, sh- a shocking statement, I think, in verse 34, especially in light of all the talk about universal love and unity and everything and, and that exists in our day, to find that Jesus talks about bringing division. I, uh, in fact, had, had used this verse uh, not too long ago in an email discussion with someone who was you know, pointing all that out. You know, Jesus says, uh, I don't remember the specifics of what they were saying, but basically Jesus, you know, is 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 all about uh, universal brotherhood and love and this kind of thing. And so I, I I gave him this verse in response, verse 34. Do not think that I came to, to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Now, I want to. Take these few verses this morning, the, the remaining verses of, of um, chapter 10. Divide them up. I would say there's really three sections here. Um, verses 34 through 37 provides one, and then verses 38 and 39 um, together, and verses 40 through 42. But I'm, but I'm going to use two main points here that I'll try to explain as we go. But the first one is just this. The gospel divides. The gospel divides. There, there is a sense in which Jesus is <coughs> preaching division here. Or at least He's saying matter-of-factly that that's what's going to take place. Now, just for a little bit of the background, remember what He's doing here is instructing His his disciples, the twelve in particular, um, as he's sending them out on mission. 
If you if you look at verse um, verse one, he called the disciples to himself, gave them authority. Is the word there? He gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease. And then he sends them out in uh, in verse uh, five. Tells them you don't don't go to the Gentile on this particular mission. You don't go to the Gentiles or the Samaritans. You just go verse six to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So on this particular mission, he's sending them specifically to. Uh, the Jews, the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But he, as we've already pointed out, he also gives instruction here beyond this particular mission so that he goes on to say in verse 17, Beware of men, for they will deliver you up to councils, scourge you in their synagogues. Uh, you will be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles, to the nations. So he seems here... To as he's instructing the twelve for this mission in Israel, his his thoughts and, and words seem to go beyond that as well. And so I think we, we find application here for all believers of all ages. Um, and he's and he's telling them, here's how it's going to be. Here's what you're going to do. You're going to go. You're going to go preaching the gospel, teaching. And and this is what's going to happen. And we've already talked about uh, some of those things. For example, you're going to you're going to encounter opposition. Uh, and so he says in verse 22, it's, it's going to be bad. So um, you'll be hated by all for my name's sake. But he who endures to the end will be saved. And then he goes on to say, verse 26, don't don't fear them. Don't fear them. You're going to encounter opposition, but don't. Fear them. It's enough for you, verse 25, that you be like your teacher. It's enough that a disciple be like his teacher and his servant be like, a servant be like his master. So, Jesus is saying, I'm encountering opposition, you're going to encounter opposition. And now, uh, he says, keep this in mind also, essentially. I didn't come to bring peace. You're going to go out preaching the gospel, interestingly enough, the gospel of peace, right? You're going to go out preaching the gospel, and people are going to oppose you. They're going to hate you. They're going to say you're of the devil. They're going to, they're going to want to kill you. They will kill some of you and, and think that they do God service. So here's what you do. You endure to the end. You confess me before men. I'll confess you before the Father. Expect these things. Because the gospel brings division. Now, let's go back to verse 34 again. Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. Now, there's, there's, there's probably a lot that could be said there. I'm just, I'm just going to deal with it um, uh, kind of on the surface here. I, I do think it's significant that he says... On the earth. In other words, ultimately, Jesus is bringing peace. And Isaiah, he's called the Prince of Peace, right? Um, in Isaiah 52, he's talked about as, as uh, bringing a message of peace, proclaiming peace. Ultimately, Jesus is proclaiming peace and will bring about peace. There will be a time when, I think, literally, 
the lion will lay down with the lamb. There's going to be no more sin. No more, uh, in, in, in that place, no more hatred for God. No more opposition to God and the things of God. There's going to be true and everlasting peace. But he says here, don't think that I came to bring, bring peace on the earth. Now, again, there's a sense in which he does. And probably things come, come to your mind immediately. Um, what about Isaiah that I already mentioned? What about Isaiah 52, 7? This is a messianic prophecy. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of Him who brings good news, who proclaims peace, who brings glad tidings of good things, who proclaims salvation. What about Luke 2, 13 and 14? The announcement of Jesus' coming, His birth. Suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. There is a sense in which Jesus came to bring peace. He brings peace to um, those who are receptive to the gospel message. He brings peace to His people. In fact, the verse I just read um, can also be translated, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to uh, men of good will. Jesus does bring peace of mind to His followers, to those who uh, come to faith in Christ, who are regenerate, born again by the power of God. He brings a peace that surpasses all understanding. Everything, as far as circumstances, can be wrong, and, and His people still know peace. In that sense, He says in John fourteen twenty seven, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. So, in that sense, He's saying, I, I bring a peace, but... It's not like the world. It's not dependent upon circumstances and it's not temporary. It's a real, true inner peace and everlasting peace. So Jesus does bring peace in one sense. And then again, as we already mentioned, there's also a sense in which... uh, uh, the peace that Jesus comes to announce and bring is just not fully realized yet. We'll know it in eternity. But now, immediately, as they're standing there this day, He's addressing His disciples. He's saying to them, don't think that I came to bring peace. And I think that's exactly what they would have expected. I think that's why He's saying that. Anticipations were high at this point in history for the coming of the Messiah and deliverance from Roman rule and the reestablishment of the sovereign nation of Israel with Messiah reigning over it. In other words, their concept of peace was a, a, a peaceful earthly kingdom. 
deliverance from Romans or any other earthly oppressor. And Jesus is saying, I, I didn't come to bring that. As, as a matter of fact, it's going to be quite the opposite. They're, they're thinking of that type of peace. And He's saying, don't think that I came to bring peace on earth in that sense. And they're probably also thinking, if this is the true Messiah, now here, here Jesus is sending them out to the lost sheep of the nation of Israel, right? These are God's chosen covenant people. The one to whom God gives His revelation, His commandments, His law. The one to whom God gives the promises, covenant promises, the promise of Messiah, the promises of kingdom blessings. So, they're also probably thinking, if if we go out and preach this message that Messiah has come, the response is going to be overwhelming joy. And all of the people of Israel are going to be ecstatic that Messiah is here, that He's come. And Jesus, again, is giving a more realistic view, saying that's not going to happen. Yes, there's a sense in which He came to bring peace, but there's also a sense in which He did not come to bring peace. He came bringing a sword. So, verse 34 again, Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. A sword. There's a, a couple of ways of, of looking at that. And I, I, I know, especially seeing that word sword next to the word peace, what, what comes to, to mind immediately is peace versus war. So, it, it sounds um, militant. Don't think I came to bring peace. I came to declare war. But I, but I really don't think that's the meaning that Jesus has in mind here. In fact, I know, you know from, from the rest of the Scripture, we know that He's not saying the kingdom of God is going to be advanced by the sword. We don't take up arms and force people to become members of the kingdom, force people to confess Jesus as Lord. That's not the way of Christ's church. His kingdom is not of this world. So we don't fight in that sense. Now I know... In history, and perhaps today, um, there are people who, in the name of Christ, will take up the sword. Uh, but I would say that is an anti-Christian approach. I mean, they may claim to be Christians, but that's not the right biblical approach. Jesus is not saying here, go out and make converts using the end of a sword. So what is he saying? Well, I think he, he's meaning uh, using the analogy of a sword to represent division. 
a, a divider. Another example of this, similar, similar example of this would be Hebrews 4.12. It carries a, a, a similar connotation. Hebrews 4.12. For the Word of God, there is, of course, it's talking specifically about God's Word. For the Word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. So here, the analogy of a sword is used referring to God's Word. Which, uh, again, could be, you know, the gospel, God's revelation. And, and listen to what the writer of Hebrews goes on to say. Sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit. It, it divides, piercing to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So, one of the functions of a knife or a sword is dividing. You, you, you can you know, cut a tomato in half. They used to do that on their Ronco commercials all the time. You know? just, or a tin can. You know, take a knife, and of course that always works, right? Take a knife and just cut a slice of tin can in half. It divides. I think that's the sense in which Jesus is using this word here. It divides. The gospel divides. The sword in verse 34 represents division. I think um, to further make the case for that, 35, verses 35 and 36 bear that idea out. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother-in-law, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be those of his own household. Now, that's a quote from Micah 7.6. Jesus uses the language of Micah 7.6 there to describe part of the effect of the gospel and the reason that He's come. I have come to set a man against. Again, the connotation of division there. To divide. So I didn't I didn't come don't think that I came to bring peace I came with a sword to divide or here's here's a a, a synonym to separate I came to 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 make a separation like like the great divide in in a sense separates our continent. And the water from each side flows in opposite directions. Jesus is saying, I've come to to make a a division. The Gospel creates a dividing line between you and the world. And it's going to cause conflict because you're you're going to be moving in an opposite direction and they won't like that. So the gospel has a separating effect in our lives. Now, here, here are just a, a few ways just for, for thought. Um, one, I just mentioned, s- separation from the world. Second Corinthians 6.17 Come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. So there's a real sense in which we are separated from the world. In fact, that's the idea behind the word saints. 
Like Paul says in Corinthians 1, you're, you're called to be saints. That is, separated ones. When you see that word saints in the Scripture, um, it means separated ones or holy ones. It's the same, uh, same word, holy, same root word. Separated, holy. We're, we're literally, God picks us, right, out of the world. Separates us from the world. Repentance uh, is, is the essence of that. Because re- repentance is a change of mind. I mean, where does the world reside, so, so to speak? Because when we say God takes us out of the world, He picks us out of the world, we don't mean that He took us off the planet, do we? Not yet. <laughs> he will do that. That's not what we mean. When, I, when, when we say things like, I was called out of the world... God called me out of the world. We don't mean that He snatched us out of the planet. What we mean is out of, out of that system, out of that um, way of thinking. He granted repentance so our mind was changed, our attitude has changed, our heart has changed. We've got a new world view. We see things differently. We, we look at the world now through, through gospel lenses. So we don't see things the same way. We're, we're separated in that sense. And as Jesus points out here, it has a, a separating effect among family. Because again, when a person is called, when you're saved, oftentimes, what? The majority of your family members are not, oftentimes. And so they're, they're part of the world. So like we were just talking about being separated from the world, uh, consequences of that is there's, there's a separation between family members. So Jesus says, I've come, verse 35, to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be those of his own household. That's significant because uh, Mike is saying this in the context of uh, God's covenant people, there's going to come a time when this kind of chaos is going to exist. Man's own family turning against him. And here Jesus is sending the twelve out to the lost sheep of Israel, right? The, the covenant people of Israel. And He's warning them, you're, you're carrying the message that the Messianic kingdom is nigh at hand. Messiah has come. Don't think that all of your brothers and sisters and mothers and mothers-in-laws and whatever, cousins among the covenant family, Israel, don't think that they're going to rejoice at the news. No, Jesus says, I've come to separate. Separate even close family relationships. The Gospel has that effect and has that effect with us as well. And although this is, uh, I'm really getting into my next point here, but it also separates in, has a separating effect in self. In self. Um, before salvation, there, there's a real, uh, this, this may sound strange, it may sound a little backwards, but before salvation, there's a real unity. In self, 
in me. I didn't have a conflict in me before I was saved about which direction I was going in life. It was just all anti-God. And it was all about self, like we talked about uh, somewhat in Sunday school this morning. But now, with the entrance of the gospel, with the entrance of salvation, Christ come into my life, and now there's division. Because He's given me a new heart. He's put a new spirit within me. He's put His spirit within me. He's, he's given, He's granted repentance, so now I've got new desires. I've, I've got a whole new way of looking at things. But, there's, there's still remnants of the old sinful nature. And so, like Paul says in Romans 7, I, I do the things I don't want to do, and the things that I want to do, I don't do. And the flesh wars against the Spirit. There's, there's division even in self because of the effect of the gospel. In fact, um, that's, that's really, self is really the problem, isn't it? Self is, is really at the heart of all of our struggles and troubles. I mean, let me try to talk a little bit more of that as we move on to the next one. First, first of all, let me, let me say this. Uh, th- this is the second section here, verses 38 and 39. Um, we must love Jesus above all, period. We must love Jesus above all. Above all, everyone else, above everything else, and as we just said, above Self. Verse 38. He who does not take his own cross... Oh, I'm sorry. Verse 37. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Now, he's just said, I've come to, to with a sword. I'm going to divide, bring about division in these relationships. Now, you're, you're faced with a choice. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, Jesus says. He's making it clear that He's drawing a line in the sand. Everybody on this side of the line is for me. Everybody on that side of the line is against me. And the line, again, is is Him. It's devotion to Him. Everybody who's devoted to me, everybody who loves me above all else is for me. Anybody who puts someone or something else before me is not worthy of me. Don't, don't, not even family. Again, we're talking about close relationships. A man against his father, daughter against her mother, daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Don't put your relatives on Jesus' throne. That, that's a seat reserved for him and him alone. He, he demands and deserves total devotion. So he who loves father or mother more than me, he says, is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And you get the picture. In other words, he, you could just generalize it and say, anybody, if you love anybody more than Jesus, he says you're not worthy of me. Now, let me say this because I... I the word worthy there is interesting to me. Because it almost sounds like, doesn't it, that he's talking about 
earning or deserving. In other words, if you don't put your father and mother before me, if you don't put your son or daughter before me or anybody else, then you are deserving of me. Well, it sounds like, doesn't it? If you just kind of turn it around. But there's a couple of ways that word worthy can be understood, properly understood. I'm not, you know, I'm not making things up here <laughs> to explain it away. I'm going to try to show you as we go. <clears throat> here are two definitions, all right, for the word worthy. This, this is come, just coming from the Strong's Concordance. The word is uh, oxios. Um, the first definition, it can mean befitting congruous or corresponding to a thing. Some examples of that, Matthew 3.8, John the Baptist tells the Jews, Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. Now see there, he doesn't mean fruits deserving repentance. He means fruits that are uh, congruous with Repentance are befitting repentance. In other words, he's saying saying that your life, your conduct, should be consistent with repentance. And what did I say repentance is a moment ago? What is repentance? Change of mind, right? It's an important distinction here to make, I think. Repentance is not your works. Repentance is something inside. It happens inside. Now, it affects what you do. And that's what John the Baptist is saying. Bring forth fruit, meaning their conduct, their life, their works, worthy of repentance. In other words, if you profess to believe... If you profess to see things one way, then act like it. But repentance is a change of mind. It's a change of disposition or attitude. You, you were against God. Now you're for God. You love God. You, you were in love with this world. Now you love God. You were for sin. Now you want to be delivered from sin. That's, that's all inside. But the fruit of repentance would be how that works out in your life. And that must be there, by the way. <clears throat> but, but the repentance itself is a change of mind. So, John the Baptist says, Bear fruits worthy of repentance. The word worthy there suggests uh, a, a continuity or, or, or a consistency. Bear fruits consistent with repentance. Um, another example. Uh, Ephesians 4. Paul writes, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you, walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. Love that verse. That's a great verse for practical, everyday living. (laughs) Walk worthy of the calling to which you were called. You're called to be saints? Act like it. That's all Paul's saying. Just live like it. But what he's saying there, walk worthy of the calling. In other words, walk consistent with the calling that you're professing. He's not saying that you can deserve the calling. 
walk in a manner deserving of the calling. Again, unless you understand that just in the sense of being consistent with. Walk worthy of the calling to which you were called. So the first definition is just the idea of befitting, congruous, corresponding. Second definition of, of worthy is this, and that, that is to merit something, to deserve something. Uh, in this same chapter, verse 10, Matthew 10.10, 10, Jesus says, as He gives uh, instructions for them for their trip, um, provide neither gold nor silver nor copper in your money belts, nor bag for your journey, nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor staffs, for a worker is worthy of his food. Now, see, he's there, he's talking about, he's saying, don't provide for yourself because you deserve to be taken care of. A, wor- a worker is deserving of his food. You go out preaching the gospel, and Jesus is saying, um, they, the people, will take care of you. God will provide for you in that way. Because a worker is worthy of his food, deserves his food. Um, again, the very next verse, verse 11, whatever city or town you enter, inquire who in it is worthy. Again, the idea of deserving. Inquire who in it is deserving and stay there. And what do you do? If they're deserving, you pronounce peace upon that house. Verse 13, let your peace come upon it. But if they're not worthy or deserving, let your peace return to you. So, first definition of worthy, befitting, congruous, consistent with. Second definition is the idea of meriting something, deserving something. I think... The idea behind this word, this same word, in verse uh, um, 37, is the first definition. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. In other words, what, what you're doing is not consistent with your, with your profession. It's, it's not congruous with the gospel. The gospel is all about Jesus. He's at the center. Again, like we talked about in Sunday school this morning. It's Christocentric. So if the church, or, or even an individual, is man-focused, then what we're doing is not worthy of the Lord. It's inconsistent with Him and His message. So he who loves father or mother is not worthy of me, uh, loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. What you're doing is inconsistent. What, in fact, what you're doing is idolatry. You're putting something else in His place. And I might add this in passing. <clears throat> These statements that Jesus is making in verse 37, verse 38, His deity is implied here. Strongly implied. Think about this for a moment. You you can think about the great prophets of old or the apostles here of the New Testament. None of them would have made this kind of claim. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Jesus is claiming a unique position. A unique authority. He's claiming to be God. He is 
worthy of our total devotion. Verse 38, And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He uses the same word again. Not worthy. If you don't do this, then your life is not consistent with what you're professing. Your, your life is not consistent with me, he's saying, and my calling. Now, let's consider these two together for a moment, because this, this, these are really, in, in my estimation, these are really sobering statements. Jesus is making, making it clear here that what He's calling for in His people, in His servants, is not some kind of superficial, half-hearted service. He's calling for total devotion. Total devotion. We have to love Jesus more than... Self. Verse 38. He who does not take his cross. Now, what does he mean by that? Now, now think about this for a second, alright? Um, Jesus hasn't gone to the cross yet at this point. They, they don't have those images in their mind. So, so they're not thinking like we do today when they're hearing this. They're, they're not picturing... Him taking up His cross and Him bearing the cross, Him dying on the cross. They, they don't have that image yet. So they're not thinking of it in terms of, of although He says, you've got to do this to be a genuine follower of Me. They're, they're not thinking of this in terms of mimicking Christ. Because he hasn't, he hasn't gone there yet. He who... He, he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy. And I would also say he's not talking about hardships. Oftentimes, um, we refer to some kind of hardship that we're going through. Could, could be physical ailment, disease. Uh, maybe bad relationship, and we say, "Well, I guess, I guess this is my cross to bear." It it may be. In fact, I would say you you probably could make the case, and I think you can, biblically, that something like that may be a means of suffering for Christ participating in his suffering suffering in this world let's say let's say with a terminal disease even though that's not the same as being persecuted like beaten for preaching Christ there still probably is a sense in which we could view that as as bearing suffering in this world for the glory of God i think that's right and true and biblical but i don't think that's what he's talking about in this passage when he says take up your cross he's not saying Bear hardship for me. You know, your cross is, you've got some kind of sickness. Your cross is, you know, your, your mother doesn't like you. Or your cross is, your boss is mean. That's not what he's saying. 
Alright, so what would they think of? In, in this context, when Jesus says to His disciples, take up your cross, when they hear that word cross, what would come to their mind? This is, this is at a time when Death on the cross was a means of capital punishment used by the Roman government. In fact, uh, not too many years prior to this, a zealot named Judas had uh, basically declared himself Messiah and gathered a following, tried to rebel against the Romans. The rebellion was put down and thousands of his followers were crucified along the roads there in Israel to, to set an example. They were crucified right, right along the street so everybody could see them to show this is what happens to rebels. And thieves, like, like the thieves that were crucified were Jesus. Thieves were crucified. It was a means of capital punishment. So, when Jesus says, take up your cross, when they hear the word cross... What's going to come to mind is death. Death. It's, it's like if I said to you today uh, the same phrase, except I, I said electric chair. Or I said lethal injection. Or I said a noose, you know. Get in your noose. And jump off the table and follow me you would say, well, I'll die if I do that. Sit down in the electric chair. Flip the switch and follow me. I'll die. And that's what they're hearing. Take up your cross and follow me. He's saying, you've got to die. And he, and he makes that essential. He who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. There's that word again, congruent or consistent. If, if your life is not a crucified life, if you don't die to self, Jesus is saying, you're not worthy of me. As I said, these are sobering Words, because he's calling for radical abandonment of self for radical commitment, devotion to him. And he's saying, this is what will characterize my followers, my people. He says it again in verse 39. He who finds his life will lose it. He who loses his life for my sake will find it. So, if you find your life in this world, you, you love life here, you, you, you live for self, you seek your own good, your own comfort, 
in a, in a, in a selfish sense. He says, you'll lose your life. It's going to cost you eternity. You think you found it, but in reality you'll lose it. But if you lose your life, that is, if you die to self, if you take up your cross, die for my sake, and that's key, (laughs) for my sake. So he's not saying, look, go run out there and create a scenario to be persecuted. Go punch a Roman soldier in the face and you'll probably be crucified and, and you'll find life. No, there's nothing Christian about that. He's talking about doing the will of God, taking the gospel to the world. Now, if you'll lay down your own life for the sake of others and lose your life in radical obedience to Christ and love for other people, if you will lose your life for the sake of others, I know he says for my sake, but I guarantee you (laughs) there's a sense in which the two are one. Matthew 25. When did we see you in prison? When did we see you naked? When did we see you hungry? And Jesus said, if you've done it to the least of these, you've done it to me. If you will lose your life to serve other people, Jesus says, then you will find life. And what you're doing is worthy. That is, it is, it is consistent with gospel living. But if you insist on keeping your own life, you will lose it. You will lose it. He must be loved more than all. More than anything. Well, there's a lot of examples we could point to. I don't have time to go through them. I'm just going to mention a few uh, missionaries like David Livingston, Jim Carey, Lottie Moon, David Brainerd. I mean, you can just go down a list of people who just died to self, left life. And, and there's thousands of others that we don't know about. Who didn't become well known, but lived a selfless life. And there are so many biblical examples. People like the Apostle Paul. People like Moses, who he, the writer of Hebrews says, looked to the reward, chose reproach with the people of Christ above temporal riches and temporal pleasure. That's what Jesus is calling for. Radical commitment. And I know that word radical gets overused a lot, but I don't think we're overusing it here. It's not, it's not hyperbole. Radical, it means to the root. He's talking about the gospel having an effect on you that goes to the very core of your being and changes you there. So that it's not superficial. It's deep-rooted. Last point, and I intentionally spent most of my time there, so... Um, you can breathe a sigh of relief. I'm not going to spend an equal amount of time on this one. Okay, <laughs> I'm going to, going to go through this one quicker. The, fir- the first main point was this: uh, that, that the gospel divides. Well, the, the, the last point is this. The second main point is this: that the gospel unites. And I'm just going to try to give you what I think is the heart of what Jesus is saying in these last few verses. 
<clears throat> and uh, we're, we're trying to spend time on this anyway in, in other settings, like uh, in our talking about the church Wednesday night and so forth. So um, we're, we're saying a lot about this anyway. I'm just going to kind of glaze over it here and, and then we'll, we'll dismiss. Verse 40, He who receives you receives me. He who receives me receives him who sent me. He who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. And he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones only a cup of cold water in the name of a disciple, surely I say to you, he shall by no means lose his reward. So repeatedly he uses this term receive. Verse 40, 41. He who receives, he who receives, he who receives you, he who receives a prophet, he who receives me, who receives a righteous man. Again, he's not talking about something superficial. Uh, some, somebody merely, you know, saying, come in, have a nice day, have a, have, can I get you a glass of tea? Not talking about, uh, although that's a nice thing, I'm not... I'm not Making light of that. But he's not just talking about a superficial acceptance. He's talking about real reception. So that, if you go back again earlier in the chapter, he says, you go into a house, and if you see that it's worthy, you say, peace be unto this house. In other words, there's real reception there. If they really receive you, you let your peace reside there. But if they don't, then you, uh, you, you, you move on. And when you depart from that house or city, shake off the dust from your feet. I think that's, that's what he has in mind here. So the negative side of it is they reject you. What you do is shake the dust off your feet and you move on. But if they receive you, you, you let your peace come there. You, you pronounce peace there. And here's the deal. If they receive you, Jesus says, they receive me. And if they receive me, they receive Him who sent me. They are brought into a real participation. Fellowship. Like John says in 1 John 1, truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son. And He wants His hearers to join in that fellowship. The Greek word koinonia means, again, partnership or participation. It, that word's not used in this text, but I think that's the idea. Jesus is saying real reception, genuine reception, includes them in the reward. They become the, a part of something. If they receive you, they receive me. And if they receive me, he says, they receive him who sent me. If they receive prophet in the name of a prophet, that is, again, there's genuine reception there. They're recognizing him as a prophet. It's like, like the uh, widow in Sarepta. She, she received Elijah as a prophet. She builds, builds a room for him knows that he's a man of God, then they receive a prophet's reward. They receive a righteous man in the name of a righteous man. They receive a righteous man's reward. They've entered into participation, partnership, sharing 
of the reward. So whoever gives one of these little ones only a cup of cold water in the name of a disciple, surely I say to you, he shall by no means lose his reward. When, when the, the gospel unites and when somebody genuinely receives the gospel, they receive God's people. It's... it's There's no separation there. It's not an either-or. It's it's not a buffet-type thing where you say, well, I'll I'll take that, but I don't want that. I I want the ice cream, but I don't want the green stuff. I mean, you can do that at a buffet and get away with it. But you can't do that in Christianity. If you really receive Christ, you really receive His people. Or, he kind of says it the other way around here, if they really receive you, then they receive me. They've entered into a participation. God's covenant blessings. The Gospel separates and the Gospel unites. Would you stand? We'll dismiss with a word of prayer. Brother Ron, would you mind praying for us as we close? This sermon is made available through the ministry of Fillmore Baptist Church in Princeton, Louisiana. Our desire is to faithfully proclaim the message of salvation which God has provided in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord. For more resources and information, please visit our website at www.fillmorebaptist.org. You may use the links there to contact us or write us at Fillmore Baptist Church, 6304 Highway 80, Princeton, Louisiana, 71067.